How's everybody doing this morning? <laughs> you sure you're doing all right? <laughs> all right. Well, you know what? Uh, you should get a good chuckle out of this. Uh, there's been a breakdown in communication, uh, and, and the breakdown has been that they've given me like an hour, <laughs> and I don't think I've ever gone an hour in my uh, in, in my life, and I didn't prepare for an hour, so... Um, that said, we're going to probably get out a little bit early today and uh, take it from there. But before we get into that, I do have one quick announcement, which will stretch out some of our time here. Um, <laughs> there is no Sunday night service tonight. So if you were planning on coming to it, don't because it will not be happening. So uh, please do not come unless you want to just kind of sit around and stare at the parking lot. But let's go ahead and we will open up in a word of prayer and then we'll get uh, right into the message. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning. We do come before you with grateful hearts. Lord, we thank you for allowing this body to gather so that your name might be lifted and, and exalted and that we might in one voice just lift up and, and worship the name of Jesus Christ, the name that is above all names. Lord, I thank you for every man and woman, boy and girl that you have brought here this morning, Father, and I do just pray that you will work through this broken vessel to communicate your truths in a way that they will be able to hold on to and grasp so that they might uh, honor you in uh, how they live their lives. We thank you, Father, for, uh, again, this time that you have allowed us, and may all that we do with it, Lord, may it bring you glory. We ask this in Christ's precious name. Amen. Well, it's good to be with you this morning. I always have a, uh, a great joy of coming over to Big Church, as we affectionately call it in our, in our children's area. I always enjoy opening the Word of God with you as well, and, and actually moving a little farther down the road in our study on Philippians. Um, if I'm not mistaken, I think we started this series back in 2002, and um, we're on pace to finish it in about 2008. So we're over halfway. Uh, we've only got a few more years, and then we kind of get to wrap up this joyous epistle. So it is good to be with you this morning. Now, some time ago, uh, or some time has really gone by since our last time together. So let me just try to bring you up to speed a little bit about some of the things that went on the last time that we got together almost a year ago, because they set the stage rather nicely for the, the passage that we're going to be looking at this morning. So if you wouldn't mind, go ahead and open up your Bibles with me to the book of Philippians and go ahead and open it up to chapter three. And as we looked last year um, at this text, verses one through three, it says, finally, my brethren rejoice in the Lord to write the same things again is no trouble to me. And it is a safeguard for you. Beware of the dogs, beware of the evil workers, beware of the false circumcision, for we are the true circumcision who worship in the spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Now, when we looked at those verses last year, we were able to see that there was a group of people that were threatening to rob the Philippians of their their joy. And they were attempting to do this by trying to add a work of the flesh to the gospel. This group often referred to as the Judaizers were trying to, to change the means by which a person was saved. 
They were trying to change it from the fact being faith and faith alone to faith plus circumcision along with certain other Jewish practices, whatever we see fit to throw in there. Well, needless to say, this didn't go over too well with the Apostle Paul. Having come out of a system of of works-based righteousness, Paul was not able to let those whom he had labored so diligently over fall into this type of a system. He cared too much to let the Philippian believers come under the bondage of a system that did nothing, absolutely nothing, to put its converts in a right standing before God. Paul knew all too well the futility of, of the Judaizer system. And thus he seeks to warn the Philippians to not let themselves be deceived by these false teachers, by these mutilators, as he liked to call them. So he tells them, you know, beware, watch out. There's trouble. Be on guard. And so he seeks to point some things out to them so that they would not be deceived and caught up in things. So Paul seeks out in chapter 3 to remind the Philippians of his prior teaching. He seeks out to stir up their memories so that they uh, might not forget the pure, unadulterated gospel that had been preached to them so faithfully by Paul. He wanted them to be on guard so that they might not be duped into somehow thinking that there was something more to salvation than coming to Jesus in true faith. He wanted them to remain true to the gospel message that had saved them from living a life of futility. The message that had allowed them to not only have life, but according to John 10.10, to have it abundantly. But the teaching of the Judaizers was threatening to destroy the very foundation of the gospel message. And if Paul let it go unchecked, it eventually zapped the very joy that had been instilled in these Philippian, Philippian believers only a few short years ago. So Paul takes aim, takes aim, and he seeks to, with pinpoint accuracy, debunk the lies of the Judaizers by showing the Philippians the futility of this type of teaching. Wanting to help these relatively young believers to live in the freedom and the joy that was now theirs in Christ, Paul sought to to teach the Philippians how to have a life that would be worth living. So in the text that we're going to be looking at this morning, you'll find three helpful hints to having a life worth living. Three hints that if properly adhered to will go a long way in giving you a life of joy and freedom such that God might truly be exalted in your life. So the first helpful hint that you must take note of if you are to have a life worth living is you must prohibit counterfeit assurance. You must prohibit counterfeit assurance. Follow along with me as we read from Philippians chapter 3 verses 4 through 6. It says, although I myself might have confidence even in the flesh, if anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to the righteousness which is in the law, found blameless. Now, at first glance, this might appear that, you know, Paul's just a, a little too high on himself. Maybe he thinks a little too much of himself. 
But I think when we look at the comments in light of their context and we understand what he's trying to do, we find out that what Paul is really doing is showing the Philippians that these bonehead Judaizers don't have a leg to stand on in comparing their Jewish achievements to Paul's. These Judaizers were trying to tell the Philippian believers that if they wanted to be, quote unquote, real Christians, well, then they needed to be circumcised. And they needed to do all of these other Jewish customs that they were practicing. So Paul decides to just kind of draw the curtain back a little bit on his former, his former days to show the Philippians the religious lifestyle that, that he was saved out of. He wanted them to understand that he fully understood the dangers of trusting in the Judaizers' faith plus system. He knew where it would lead. He was very familiar with those things that the Judaizers were telling the Philippians they needed to take part in. He had done them himself. He knew all too well the vanity in trusting in those things. So wanting to spare his beloved children in the faith from going down that dead-end road, Paul warns them by revealing his former accomplishments. Very much like a parent who's been saved out of a life of fornication or alcohol or drugs or gangs, whatever the case may be, Paul attempts to make it perfectly clear that he understands the futility of trusting in anything other than Jesus Christ. Paul wanted them to know, you know what? I have not always been a Christian. He'd been saved from from the very thing that the Judaizers were trying to take the Philippians into. So let's take a quick look at these seven things that Paul had once trusted in. The first thing we find on this list is that Paul had been circumcised the eighth day. Now, the significance of this statement is that it shows that Paul had been born into the Jewish faith. He was well acquainted with the privileges and the ceremony of Judaism from birth. Paul was no proselyte. He was no recent convert into Judaism and thus circumcised later on in life. Nor was he an Ishmaelite who was circumcised after the 13th year of his life. He was a true-blooded Jew. A true-blooded Jew who had been circumcised in accordance to the commandment given to Abraham in Genesis 17:12. The second thing that we find on this list is that Paul was of the nation of Israel. Now, whenever a Jew wanted to stress their special relationship to God in the most unique way, it was their claim to be an Israelite that really did this. For it was the Israelites and the Israelites alone who could trace their descendants back to Jacob, the very one whose name was changed to Israel by God. So this title was meant to demonstrate a Jew's absolute purity of descent. And the reason for this is quite simple. I mean, it goes to the fact that the Ishmaelites, well, I mean, if they wanted to, they could trace their, their descendancy back to Abraham. I mean, Ishmael was Abraham's son through Hagar. And in addition to this, the Edomites, if they wanted to, they could trace their descent back to Isaac, the promised son of Abraham, since Esau, the founder of the Edomite nation, was Isaac's son. But by referring to himself as an Israelite, 
Paul made it perfectly clear that he was of the purest descent. The third item we find on Paul's impressive list is that he was of the tribe of Benjamin. So not only did this make him an Israelite, it made Paul a member of one of the most prominent tribes in Israel. Benjamin was the last of Jacob's son and the only one that was born in the promised land. When the promised land was divided into 12 tribes, the holy city of Jerusalem was located in Benjamin's territory, according to Judges 121. It was from the tribe of Benjamin that Israel received her first king, Saul, as seen in 1 Samuel 9.21. And after Solomon's death, when the kingdom divided and it was split, it was only the tribes of Benjamin and Judah that remained loyal to the Davidic line. The tribe of Benjamin was a tribe that had done much to distinguish itself from the other tribes, and it was one of the most noble in all of Israel. And unlike many of the Judaizers who probably had little to no knowledge of what tribe they had come out of. I mean, things have gotten so mixed up and and so tweaked around that most of them probably didn't even know what tribe they had come out of. Paul wanted to show, look, I am a purebred descendant of this prestigious tribe. The fourth item that we find on Paul's long list is that he was a, a Hebrew of Hebrews. Now, although Paul was born in Tarsus, a Greek-speaking city located in Asia Minor, his family was one that had remained firmly committed to the language, the traditions, and the customs of their ancestors. This probably means that Paul maintained the ability to at least speak and, and read Hebrew as evidenced in Acts 21.40 as he quiets the mob that had removed him from the temple because he had supposedly defiled it by bringing in a Greek. He speaks to them in Hebrew, in the Hebrew dialect. Paul wanted to be sure that he could not be mistaken for some kind of Hellenized Jew, a Jew who had been assimilated into the Greco-Roman culture. So while he was able to speak the language of the country that he was born in, more importantly, he could still speak the language of of his ancestors. These first four items help the Philippians to better understand the heritage, the deep heritage that Paul had. But as we will see, there was much more to Paul than just his heritage. The next three items will measure the magnitude of Paul's vast achievements within Judaism. Lest anyone try to accuse Paul of of just being a Jew of, of privilege and that's it. The fifth item on Paul's list shows us that when it came to the law... Paul was considered a Pharisee. This was Jewish religion at its most demanding. The Pharisees were the spiritual elite, the Navy SEALs of religion, if you would. A group that, of people that were so committed, so fanatical, that they sought to separate themselves from the normal rigors of everyday life so that they could be consumed with interpreting and implementing the smallest details of the law. These guys didn't miss anything. As one commentator put it, to be a Pharisee was to be a member of an elite, influential, and highly respected group of men who fastidiously lived to know, interpret, guard, and obey the law. And get this, Paul was one of them. The sixth item on Paul's list, let the Philippians know that when it came to zeal, their beloved apostle, the one who had labored so much over them, used to be 
a persecutor of the church. I mean, he was so hardcore that when it came to preserving the Jewish heritage, Paul stood out like a man among boys. He was, he was just in, on fire for it. It was was at the feet of a young man named Saul that the witnesses laid aside their robes as they stoned Stephen to death. It was the same Saul who, according to Acts 8.3, began ravaging the church, entering house after house and dragging off men and women, putting them in prison. It was the same Saul who sought letters from the high priest so that he could go down to Damascus and purge the synagogues of any man or woman who might belong to the way. And you know, it would be on the way down to Damascus that this zealous Saul would come face to face with the risen Lord. A meeting that would transform the zealous Pharisee into the beloved and revered Apostle Paul. I mean, if we were to look at that, I think that we can safely say that Paul had a far greater zeal than any of the Judaizers that were attempting to bring the Philippians under the bondage of Jewish customs and traditions. Paul Paul claims to have known Judaism in its most intense, its most radical, its most extreme form. All of which brings us to the seventh and final item that is to be found on Paul's list. The item that really sums up Paul's Judaistic achievements He writes, as to the righteousness which is in the law, found blameless. Now, Paul is by no means attempting to say that his life was without sin. That would be a flat out lie. But what he is saying is that no one could accuse him of being a slacker when it came to his efforts to keep the law. In a sense... Paul loved God and he did everything that he humanly could to serve him. If he sinned, he immediately offered a proper sacrifice for his atonement. To those who were looking on, Paul was a more than adequate poster boy for the Jewish faith. Paul certainly appeared to have it all. I mean, if we look at the list, he had a lot to boast in. I mean, he had taken part in the proper ceremonies. He had the right ancestry. He was from the right tribe. He had maintained the right dialect and the right customs. He'd obtained membership into one of the strictest groups within Judaism. He had zeal for his religion to such a degree that he was willing to persecute those who turned from it. And he had so rigidly adhered to the outward requirements of Judaism that he was somebody who was above reproach. And yet these things were not enough. These things were not enough to put Paul into a right relationship with God. These things, as impressive as they may have seemed, did nothing, nothing to make Paul right with God. All they could offer Paul was a counterfeit assurance. Isaiah 64, 6 says that, Our righteous deeds are like a filthy garment to God. Think about that for a moment. Everything that Paul had worked so hard for, everything that he had labored hour upon hour upon to observe even the slightest 
little dot or tittle of the law was in God's eyes nothing more than a filthy garment. I mean, the assurance that Paul had of his being right with God because of his religious heritage and his accomplishments, they were just flat out a counterfeit. They were false. And no matter how sincerely Paul had been in his trusting in those things to save him, had it not been for his encounter with the risen Lord on the road to Damascus, Paul would have died and he would have gone directly to hell. And it's my fear that some of you are in a position that is very similar to the one that Paul was in. Some of you are trusting in your works to save you. You're sitting out there with your counterfeit assurance, thinking that you're right with God when you're not. It's my fear that some of you are trusting in your religious heritage. You're trusting in the fact that you're, you're a, you're a Christian because you brought, you were brought up in a Christian home. Even though you've never moved on to embrace the faith personally yourself. Still others of you, it is my fear, are in some religious, are trusting in some religious ceremony to save you. You're trusting in that, that altar call response. Or the day in which you were baptized. Even though there's been no fruit flowing out of your life since those days. Still, others of you are trusting in your good deeds to save you. You're hoping that all those discount cards that you've bought over the years that enabled a student to go to camp will somehow tilt the scales in your favor. That all of the good things you've done, all of the, 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 the coins you've dropped in front of the supermarket in that little basket are somehow making you good enough to stand before God uncondemned. Whatever the case may be, if your assurance is in anything other than the work that Jesus Christ accomplished on the cross, then let me be the first to tell you, you are the owner of a counterfeit assurance. And until you stop trusting in that counterfeit assurance, whatever it may be, you will never have a life that is worth living. So, having shown you your need to prohibit counterfeit assurance, helpful hint number one, we're now ready to look at helpful hint number two and having a life that is worth living, and that being, you must practice careful accounting. You must practice careful accounting. Follow along with me as we read from Philippians 3, verses 7 through 8. But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ... More than that, I count all things to be lost in the view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ. The term that Paul uses here stresses a contrast between profit and loss. Those things that Paul had had once valued so much that he put so much stock into And those things that he had once counted in his credit column had now been moved over and placed in his debit column. 
Paul had come face to face with the other worthlessness of his self-righteous works. I mean, having at one point in time counted his works as great gains, as a means to be in a right standing with God, he was now able to see them for the great loss that they were. Those things that were once a great source of pride for, for Paul were now a great source of sorrow. In Paul's careful assessment of his past, we find the miraculous power of the gospel. The ability that it had to completely change a life. To change how people like you and me view our past as well as our current actions. Paul had once considered himself blameless when it came to the law, but upon coming into a personal relationship with Jesus Christ... He saw that blamelessness quickly evaporate to such a degree that in 1 Timothy 1.15, Paul writes, It is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ came into the world to save sinners. And get this from the man who was once blameless, among whom I am foremost of all, the chief of sinners. Ladies and gentlemen, such is the power of the gospel. Such is the better way of Christ. The way that exposes us for who we really are, wretched. Despicable sinners. And yet, a way that shows us how to be set free from that horrendous condition. This was the way that Paul, this is the way that Paul had found. And it was such a superior way that he was willing to renounce all of his former achievements, all of the things that he had labored so hard for. He's willing to take all of those and to consider them rubbish for the sake of gaining Christ. I mean, as you look at verses 7 and 8, you can't help but notice the radical shift that took place in Paul's life. It's a shift that is to take place in the life of not just Paul, but in each and every believer. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says that if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. And because we are new creatures, we are no longer to be governed by the same principles, the same motives that once governed us. Our thoughts and our attitudes, they need to be different from those that are unsaved. The things that we once counted as gain need to be counted as loss. But let me ask you the question, is this true of you? Have you, like Paul, counted all of your past achievements as rubbish in comparison to gaining Christ? Have you done some careful accounting to make sure that those things that were once gained to you are counted but lost for the sake of gaining Christ? Is there anything on your account ledger that you've yet to move over to the loss column? For the sake of gaining Christ. 
Is Jesus Christ your all in all? Is he your everything? Is he the most important person to you in the world? In the book, Don't Waste Your Life by John Piper, Piper writes, If we would embrace the glory of God, we must embrace the gospel of Christ. The reason for this is not only because we are sinners and need a Savior to die for us, but also because this Savior is himself the fullest and most beautiful manifestation of the glory of God. He purchases our undeserved and everlasting pleasure, and he becomes for us our all-deserving, everlasting treasure. Life is wasted if we do not grasp the glory of the cross, cherish it for the treasure that it is, and cleave to it as the highest price of every pleasure and the deepest comfort in every pain. Paul saw Jesus Christ as the ultimate treasure. In Paul's mind, there was nothing, nothing that could surpass his knowing Christ. In Luke 9, 25, Jesus asked, For what is a man profited if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? The implied answer is he's not. He's not profited at all. It was Paul's understanding of the supremacy of Christ that enabled him to walk away from everything. And get this, I do mean everything. What mattered most to Paul was not who he was, but who Christ was. It didn't matter to Paul what he would become, but who God would make him. Paul practiced careful accounting. And it was this careful accounting that helped him to have a life that was worth living. Which brings us to helpful hint number three in having a life worth living. You must possess correct aspirations. If you are to have a life that is worth living, you must possess correct aspirations. One of the greatest aspirations that Paul had was that he might be found in Christ. It is this concept that is at the very heart of Paul's theology. To be, to be in Christ meant that a person was intertwined with Christ in the most intimate of ways so as to form an inseparable bond. And Paul uses this terminology more than 75 times to demonstrate the bond that exists between believers in Christ. And by being in Christ, there's a union with the Lord. And this union enables, it enables the believer to, to experience the covering of Christ's righteousness. And in addition to that, it gives them all of the resources of Christ. It makes them available to him. In our text, Paul defines being in Christ in terms of righteousness. Thus, being found in Christ means being clothed with the righteousness of Christ rather than one's own. Think about that. Think about what that means to be clothed with the righteousness of Christ rather than your own. Think of that in, in, in light of Romans 3.10, where it says that there is none righteous, not even one. And yet, get this, 
the righteousness of Christ comes to the believer from God on the basis of faith. It's nothing that the believer earns. It's nothing that the believer deserves. It's a gift from God. And the believer, when he receives his gift, is clothed with the righteousness of Christ based on their believing that which happened to Christ. Get this, it's not the believer's faith that makes him righteous. His faith is simply the generator by which Christ's righteousness is received. The believer is simply joined to Christ through faith such that Christ's righteousness becomes his righteousness. And people hear this because this is huge. In God's standard, that which is true of Christ becomes true of the believer. Dwell on that for a second. In God's standard, that which is true of Christ becomes true of the believer. That great truth is at the core of the gospel. At the cross, God judged Jesus as if he had committed the sins of every person who had ever believed, who had ever sinned. When a sinner turns to Jesus and trusts in his glorious work upon the cross, God judges that sinner as if he lived Jesus' sinless life. And we see this in the Bible, evidenced in passages like 2 Corinthians 5.21, where it says, He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Or 1 Peter 2.24 where it reads, And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness for by his wounds you were healed. That is indeed good news. It's good news to anyone who comes to God in faith. Anyone who comes to God in faith believing in the death and burial and resurrection of his son, Jesus Christ. Paul knew firsthand, he had discovered firsthand that it was impossible to be declared righteous before God on the basis of the law. He had tried it and it didn't work. He knew the futility of it. So the righteousness that Paul had come to experience could not be achieved by any man. It was something that could only be given by the Son of Man. It could never be won by the works of the flesh, but only by receiving through the work of the grace. Another of the great aspirations that Paul possessed was his desire to know Him, to know Christ. And it was this desire that sought to deepen the already intimate relationship that, that existed between Paul and Christ. Like many of the spiritual giants that have gone before him, Paul had a, a real hunger, a real, ha- a real appetite to know God. And it was this appetite that, that drove him and helped him to know God in a more intimate way. I'm confident that Paul took note of, of Moses' insatiable desire to go deeper into the heart of God. I'm sure he must have read this time and time again in the Old Testament because in, in Exodus 33:11 it says, God spoke with Moses face to face, just as a man speaks to his friend. But notice what happens in verse 13 of that same chapter. Moses says to God, 
Now, therefore, I pray you, if I have found favor in your sight, let me know your ways that I may know you. You know, Moses wasn't the only Old Testament man to to have a hunger and a desire for God like that. David, King David evidenced this hunger in some of his Psalms. In fact, in Psalm 42, verses 1 through 2, we read these familiar words. As the deer pants for the water brooks, so my soul pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? David was a man who actually thirsted after God. He had a real hunger, a real appetite to know God in the fullest and the most ultimate sense. And despite his failings, it was this hunger that allowed David to be known as a man who was after God's own heart. In the same line of Moses and David, we have Paul, a man used by God to spread the good news of Jesus Christ like no other. A man who who had a great hunger to know Christ, to know him. And it was this hunger, this appetite that moved him to consider all of his past accomplishments, everything about him, all of the successes, to view them as being nothing more than rubbish. It was this hunger, this appetite that prompted him to seek to know Christ in a deeper, more personal way. It was this hunger... For Christ that caused Paul to long to experience, according to what our text says, the power of his resurrection. Paul had experienced the minuscule power of the law. He now wanted to experience real power. The type of power that was able to raise Christ from the grave. The type of power that was able to help him to walk in a manner that would be pleasing to God. Romans 6 verses 4 and 5 says, Therefore we have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in the newness of life. For we have become united with him in the likeness of his death. Certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. Paul wanted to experience this newness of life to its fullest. And he knew that by tapping into Christ's resurrection power, he would be assured of far more than he was able to accomplish through his own flesh. Paul also sought to experience the fellowship of his Christ's sufferings. Paul wanted so much to be to become more like Christ. That he was willing to endure the suffering that went along with his sanctification process. As Paul sought to grow in holiness, follow his reasoning here, he knew that he would endure greater hardship. Because if Christ, who was perfect, who lived the perfect life, suffered hardship, and Paul, wanting to be like Christ, wanting to follow in his footsteps, wanting to do what Christ did, be holy like him, Wouldn't it stand to reason that the more sanctified, the more holy, the more perfect Paul became, the more the world would begin to hate him, just like they hated Christ. And thus, the more suffering he would endure. Jesus taught this truth in Matthew 10, 24 through 25, when he when he said, a disciple is not above his teacher, nor a slave above his master. 
It is enough for the disciple that he become like his teacher and the slave like his master. If they have called the head of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign the members of his household? Paul confirmed the same truth when he writes to his young protege, Timothy, in 2 Timothy 3.12. He says, Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. No maybes there. No, uh, you know, if you have a bad, uh, a bad week or something like that. It's a definite. Will be. If you are desiring to be more godly, to live godly in Christ Jesus, get this, people. You will be persecuted. We will be persecuted. And we need to be prepared for that. So we don't wonder what God's doing when it happens. Another aspiration that Paul had was that he might be conformed to his death, to Christ's death. This is the sense where Paul was looking to become so acquainted, so obedient with the Lord that he too would be willing to lay down his life for the sake of this call. If there was a choice to be made between disobeying the Lord and being killed, Paul wanted to choose the latter. Now, the final correct aspiration that we see in Paul is that he wanted more than anything to attain to the resurrection from the dead. Paul wanted, most of all, to be with his matchless Savior in glory. Paul longed for the day when he would finally be free from his sin-cursed body. He would finally be set free from the bondage of this, this flesh so that he could bask fully in the glory of his Savior. This is the time when the believer would get to be with the Lord forever. No more sickness, no more pain, just pure, unadulterated worship and joy in the presence of our Master. Man, what a time that will be. And oh, how Paul longed for that day. How he looked to it with with great anticipation. Paul understood that this world is not the believer's home. We are simply here for a time. And as for as long as the Lord sees fit to keep us here, then you and I need to be a people that are busy going about doing his work and fulfilling his plans. But let me ask you something. Is Paul's desire to be with the, the majestic Savior, is that characteristic of you? Do you long for the day when we finally get to go home to be with our Savior? Or are there still some things here on this earth that you long for more? some unfinished business, some things you'd like to see happen before you go. If you're not ready for the Lord to come back right now, then let me encourage you to get things right with Him right now. Because that needs to be our greatest hope. That needs to be what we're fixed on. The Lord's return.
and looking forward to that day when we can go and be with him forever in eternity, worshiping him, praising him for who he is and what he's done. Let me encourage you all to fix your hearts on the things above because you know what? This earth and all that is in it is passing away. And anything that this world has to offer, I I guarantee you, it pales in comparison to what awaits the believer in heaven. This morning, we've gone over three helpful hints for having a life worth living. I trust that you will take all three of these hints and, and look for ways in which you can apply them to your own life. As we've covered, if you are to have a life that is worth living then you must do these three things. You must prohibit counterfeit assurance. You must practice careful accounting. And you must possess correct aspirations. This is what we see in the life of the Apostle Paul. This is what we see in the life of the believer as laid out in Scripture. It be my hope that each of us would be able to follow that so that we can bring glory to God for all that he's done in our lives. Let's close in a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for giving us this time where we could gather together and we could open up your word. And Lord, I do pray for the hearts of those people out there that have not fully handed their lives over to you those people who are hoping in a counterfeit assurance, that have a counterfeit assurance, Lord, I pray that you will just break through that tonight, today, that you will help them to see the futility of it, that you will help them to understand how real assurance comes from trusting in nothing other than the work of Jesus Christ. Lord, help us to be a people who prohibit counterfeit assurance. Help us to be a people who practice careful accounting. Help us to look at our lives in such a way that we would see those things that were once gained to us as being losses, as being opportunity wasted to bring you glory and to live for you. Now, Lord, all of those things that we so highly esteemed before we came to you, that we might count them but rubbish compared to gaining you. And Lord, I pray that we would all possess correct aspirations, that we would long to be with you in glory, that that would be our hope and our desire, the longing of our heart, that we would hunger for you more than anyone or anything in this world. Lord, I pray that your word would go forth and that you will use this message to work in the hearts of your people for your glory. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen.